Tonight we begin in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I I don't want to say that chapter 3 is a letdown after chapter 2, but we have to admit, chapter 2 dealt with some very exciting and big themes, you know, the Antichrist and the rapture and the return of the Lord and and all these different aspects uh, uh, that we took a look at the last time we were together. And, And it would be easy for somebody to think that, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 is kind of a a letdown compared to chapter 2, but I don't want you to think that way. We should take a look at this and really understand that what Paul is doing in this last part of his letter to the Thessalonians, his second letter, is he's really giving them instructions and and guidance for the life of their congregation. And and so first, um, he's going to request prayer. He's also going to pray, but first he requests prayer. Look at it in verses 1 and 2. He says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. I find it very fascinating how often Paul asked other Christians to pray for him. I mean, just a quick look in the New Testament. I found uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 30. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 and 19, Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 25, and Philemon, verse 22. And I don't say those intending that you should write them down. I just want to give you a feeling that in many of his letters, Paul asked for prayer. We really have the feeling that Paul knew that the success of his ministry, in some measure, depended on the prayers of God's people. And so he's asking them, please, please, please pray for me. Pray for my ministry. Finally, brethren, pray for us. And then what specifically? That the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified. Paul's great concern Again, what he first asked the Thessalonian Christians to pray for was that God's word would be free to do its work among others, even as it had been among the Thessalonians. We catch that from the phrase where he says, just as it is with you. In other words, the Thessalonians understood that there was a great freedom, a great liberty to the operations of the word of God among them. Well, Paul said, you know how it worked among you. Pray that that happens in other places too. And this should really remind us, anytime we see a ministry that's blessed, anytime we see the word of God going forth and just sort of being a blessing to other people, we should pray, Lord, thank you for what you're doing in this particular place, but do it in other places too. Let let the word of the Lord run swiftly and be glorified. You have to like the way Paul phrased that. You know, you almost think of the word like a Bible running along. You know, it's it's free, it's unhindered. There's nothing blocking the word. Paul's prayer request makes us wonder here how often the word of God and the, the work of God's word must be hindered by our prayerlessness. You think about that. You, you, you go to a church and the, and the preacher just seems dead. And the work of the word of God uh, seems dead at that particular church. Well, th- there's a lot of different reasons why that might be the case, right? It might be that the preacher's not right with God. There may be deep problems in the leadership. There may be unbelief. There may be worldliness. But surely one thing you should be willing to look at is maybe the real lack in that church is prayerfulness among the people. Maybe there are prayerless people, and that's why the word of the Lord does not run swiftly and and is glorified among them. 
You see, God has promised that his word would be free and perform its work. You remember that great passage from Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11, where it says, It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it'll prosper in the thing for which I sent it. But, but as with many of God's promises, we're expected to take a promise like that in faith and in prayer, ask God to perform it for his glory. In other words, God, you promised that your word would accomplish what you intended to do. God, I pray that you put that promise and I, I'm going to claim that promise. I'm going to stand on that promise before you right now. So this is what they pray for. Brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. But notice the second part of it here. And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for not all have faith. You see, Paul also recognized that there were particular men who wanted to hinder the work of the gospel. And Paul wanted God to either deliver him from such men or, how about this, change them into reasonable and godly men. Isn't that a great way to destroy your enemy, to make him your friend, to make him your colleague? You've just destroyed your enemy because now he's on your side. If you think about it, verse 2, that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, those who opposed the work of the gospel. You have to wonder if Paul thought about it when he wrote that, that, that he was just such one of those men, right? And God changed him. So there's different ways that we can be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. God can sort of take them out of the way and make it so where they can no longer hinder us, or God can change them into reasonable and godly men. Now, in verse 3, Paul's going to transition from asking for prayer to sort of praying. Look at it here, verse 3 through 5. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish and guard you from the evil one, And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. What I want you to see here is actually in verses 3, 4, and 5, we have a prayer, that's in verse 5, and then we have an exhortation or an encouragement in verses 3 and 4. You see, Paul ended verse 2 with the idea that not all men have faith. But even if not all men have faith, what's the contrast? Look at verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. Maybe I should read it going just from verse 2 into 3. And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. See the great contrast there? You know, there are unfaithful men out there. Of course there are. There are wicked people, people who will oppose or block the work of the gospel in some way. But thankfully, the Lord is faithful. This was the basis of Paul's confidence in God's ability to to preserve the believer. That's why he says there in verse 3, the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. You see, notice this. Paul introduced the thought of opponents, right, of wicked people. And we remember way back when we were in chapter 1 that Paul discussed this idea of the persecutions that the Thessalonians were facing and how they had to stand their ground in the midst of it. Well, look at his great confidence here in verse 3. The Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Now, evil men may oppose you, but you will not be turned over to Satan. Isn't that a wonderful confidence that we have that God will establish us and guard us from the evil one? God has promised to keep Satan on a leash. 
He will not allow any temptation to become too great for us. And he will not allow Satan to do whatever he wants for us. Excuse me, whatever he wants to do with us. I should put it that way. Of course, you know this, for example, from the book of Job, right? Remember the book of Job? And how Satan asked for permission, and he had to ask for permission. Satan couldn't do anything against Job unless God allowed it. And God only allowed what he knew Job could handle and what he knew he would strengthen Job to be able to handle. I think of another passage in Luke chapter 22 when Jesus spoke to to Peter. You know, there's some words in the Bible that just sort of send a chill up my spine when I read it. And when Peter uh, was conversing with Jesus and Jesus told Peter, Peter, I want you to know something. Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But, But don't worry, I've prayed for you, Jesus said. I mean, can you imagine poor Peter? Oh my gosh, Satan wants to sift me as wheat. Of course he does. Sometimes we say it was sort of a cliche in evangelism. When I was much younger, people would start out an evangelistic technique known as the four spiritual laws. And the first spiritual law was God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's the first thing they wanted to uh, encourage people to understand. Well, I think that there's a sort of a, a converse spiritual law with that. You could say Satan hates you and has a terrible plan for your life. But but fortunately, we're not left up to Satan's devices. We're not left up to his mercy. The the Lord is faithful, verse 3, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. You see, Paul was also confident. He was confident in the Lord regarding the Thessalonians themselves, that they would follow through and be obedient to God's word. This shows that God's work of establishing and guarding us is done in part through his appeal to our will in obeying his word. Notice the connection between verses 3 and 4. You say, yes, I want to be established. I want to be guarded. Well, how do we become established and guarded? Do we just sort of lay on our beds and as we sleep, oh, Lord, establish me and guard me. And when I wake up in the morning, let it all be done. No, no, no. Part of it is God appeals to us. Look at it in verse 4. Both that you do and will do the things that we command you. You know, God establishes and guards the believer as he works in the believer, both to will and to do the things that God wants him to do. God doesn't just pour spiritual maturity and stability into us. He works it into us and through us, through our cooperation with his will. But then I like the little prayer at verse 5. I find it very touching, actually. Paul says, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. You see, knowing the work that the Thessalonians needed to do and needed to progress in, Paul shot up a little prayer to heaven right here as he dictated this letter to the person who was writing it down for him. He says, May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. Isn't that a great place to have your heart? My heart is in the love of God. You just think the love of God is being like a a, a vast ocean. Here's the ocean of God's love, and that's where my heart is. My heart is in God's love, and then also he says, and into the patience of Christ. Paul prayed for two things, both for love and patience. Now listen, when I say that word patience, I hope 
the idea in your mind isn't just of, of sort of the ability to passively wait. What is patience? Patience is that ability that enables you to not get angry and frustrated when uh, the restaurant takes an hour and 15 minutes to bring you your food. Oh my, what great patience that person has, right? They can wait a long time without becoming frustrated and angry, which I do not have that ability, I should tell you right now. But, you know, you don't think of that as patience. That's not the kind of patience Paul is talking about here. The, the ancient Greek word that he uses here doesn't have the idea of the ability to passively wait. The ancient Greek word that he uses has the idea of the ability to endure through difficulty. It's not the quality that enables you to wait in the restaurant. It's the quality that enables you to finish the race, to to complete a marathon race. It's endurance to the end. Now think of it that way. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the endurance of Jesus Christ. And you think about it, if there's any wonderful example, wonderful model, wonderful forerunner of endurance for us. It's the endurance of Jesus Christ. And these two qualities were essential for the kind of spiritual stability and strength that the Thessalonians needed. They needed the love of God and this kind of endurance. Now, going on here, verse 6, you you almost get the feeling that Paul is ready to wrap up the letter in the next verse. Verse 6, oh, uh, yes, and uh, greetings to this person and to that person and sign the letter. But it seems as if at verse 6, something popped into Paul's mind. Yes, I I need to add this. I I can't leave this unsaid when I speak to the Thessalonians here. He says, but we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. You know, when we look at verse 6, the first thing we have to do is admit we're struck at what a command it is, right? But we command you. This isn't, you know, a pleasant suggestion from the mind of Paul. He's very strong in this. But we command you, brethren. Not only saying that, he says we command you, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how he's strengthening the idea of a command there? It's not only a command. It's a command in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to do what? Middle of verse 6. That you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition that he received from us. Now, Paul defined those who were disorderly as those who did not walk according to the tradition that Paul and the apostles gave to them. Now, what, what is the tradition? What does he mean by that? You know, when we say tradition today, sometimes we think of, you know, holiday traditions or, you know, uh, cultural traditions or, you know, these kind of things. That, that's not really what's in Paul's mind. What's in Paul's mind is the pattern of teaching and living that the apostles, including Paul, passed on to the early church. You, you see, notice this that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly to the tradition which he received from us, from the apostles. Churches should never withdraw from someone because they fail to conform to man's teachings or traditions. The only standard to uphold is apostolic teaching or tradition. It's very easy as a church to start dividing lines over things that aren't strictly biblical. 
And so you have to say, no, 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 we're not talking about just preserving human tradition. We're talking about apostolic traditions, this great teaching, this foundation that was passed on to us from the early church. And I need to point something else out to you. Uh, Again, I, I need to make a little disclaimer here. I'm no expert in the ancient Greek languages, but I know how to read commentaries that are written in plain English that describe for me the, the nuances of the ancient Greek text. And according to one of my favorite commentators, D. Edmund Hebert, he says that here where it says, every brother who walks disorderly, he says it's in the present tense. And that means that it is a deliberate course of action. Their disorderly conduct is not an occasional lapse but it is a persistent practice. Now, what do you do with those who have the persistent practice? Again, let me know that this is a persistent practice of being disorderly. This is not speaking about the believer who hates his sin and is struggling with it. This is talking about a believer who has said, no, 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 I want to persist in this disorderly way that I'm walking. Again, this is not a weak believer struggling with sin. This is a rebellious believer walking in a disorderly way. So what do you do? You withdraw from this person. You see, Paul had already told the Thessalonians to warn the unruly. Maybe we should take a look at that. Keep your finger here, but turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting here at verse um, 14. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. He says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. Uh, apparently there were some in the um, Thessalonian congregation who were causing trouble. They, they were just making trouble in various ways. And in a moment, we'll sort of have the idea of, of what the trouble is. But just for now, just take it that they're causing trouble, they're being disorderly. Well, apparently, the Thessalonians either didn't properly uh, warn those who were unruly, or they did properly do it, and it didn't work. So the problem still remained in some measure. So now Paul told them to discipline the unruly ones in question. What I want you to notice this is that when we compare 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 with 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we find out that this idea of withdrawing from the disorderly brother, that's not the first step, right? Oh, disorderly brother, while you're persisting in it, goodbye. No, that's not the first step. First you warn them. First you work with them. It's part of a continuum. And apparently Paul understood that they had already dealt with these people. They were continuing to be disorderly. And it had advanced along the stage where Paul says, withdraw from every brother who walks in this disorderly way. Now the purpose in withdrawing from these disobedient ones was not so much punishment but more so simply to deny these disobedient ones the aid and the comfort of the fellowship of the body of Christ until they repented. It sort of put them out of the comfort and fellowship of the church and put them into what we might consider to be the domain of Satan, that is the world. And the hope was that they would miss the fellowship of the church so much that they would repent of their disobedience. You can see how this would work, might I say, especially you can see how it might work in a first century context, where if you were booted out of this church in Thessalonica, you couldn't just go down the street to another church in Thessalonica, right? 
<laughs> there was one group of Christians gathering together in Thessalonica. And if you wanted to be a part of that community, you had to obey the apostolic traditions. And if weakness was the problem, they would minister to you in love. But if you were unruly, if you were disobedient according to these apostolic traditions and persisted in it, they would withdraw from you. They would say, you, you are no longer part of us. Now, again, I want to emphasize the idea behind this is not so much punishment. We will punish you for your sin. That's not the idea. The idea is things aren't right here. Things aren't normal. And you need to be called to the attention of that. And the way to do that is to withdraw normal fellowship from you so that you miss the fellowship of the church and that you're willing to get right in order to regain it. Paul echoed this same idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. The, the purpose there was to bring about repentance and salvation in the disobedient ones. It wasn't to condemn them. It wasn't to damn them. And by the way, you can say this in an indirect way. Paul showed that his vision for the church was that it should be such a place of love, such a place of comfort, that it would be a significant deprivation to be put out of it. Oh, don't put me out of the church. I love the, the fellowship. I love the, the loving atmosphere. I love the care that I receive here. Please don't put me out of the church. That should be the goal of every church, to have that kind of community within itself. So, again, we catch the command here, right, in verse 6. Withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. But you kind of say, well, Paul, what, what are you talking about? What's the specific issue at play among the Thessalonians? And Paul's going to answer that question in verses 7, 8, and 9. Take a look here. He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge. But we worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have the authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. Aha! Now we know the specific area where some of these Thessalonian believers were being unruly, as described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and here we're being disobedient, walking in disorderliness, uh, described here just in the verses we looked at before in Second Thessalonians chapter 3. C can I just put it in one word? They were lazy. Paul says, if you want to know the apostolic tradition, look at how I worked. Remember how I worked among you. He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. Paul was an excellent example among the Thessalonians in that he worked hard to support his own needs. Now again, Paul is very careful to explain here in verse 8, I believe it is, where he says, um, excuse me, verse 9, where he says, not because we do not have the authority. It wasn't that, that apostles like Paul didn't have the right to request support. Paul says, we have the right. Instead, it was because he wanted to set a good example of hard work and to prove false any accusation that he preached the gospel for personal gain. And that's why Paul says, listen, the, the life we live, the apostolic tradition that we passed on to you, one aspect of it is that we were not lazy and we worked hard to provide for our own needs. And then he says there in verse 9, to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. You see, therefore, the, the Thessalonians should follow Paul in his example, both his example of hard work, but also in his willingness to sacrifice for the furtherance and the integrity of the gospel. You know, when we think about this aspect of the Apostle Paul, we're very impressed, are we not? 
We think of how Paul went about from place to place. Now, nobody should think for a moment that Paul refused all financial support. He did not. He definitely received financial res- uh, support from some people, from some congregations. For example, he, he says with great thanksgiving about the gift that the Philippian congregation sent to him. So we know that Paul would receive at certain times in certain places financial support. At the same time, Paul was very sensitive to the idea that there were certain times in certain situations where receiving financial support made it less likely that he could effectively minister. That they would say, well, he's preaching this gospel just to earn a living for himself. And Paul wanted to avoid any such accusation. And therefore, at certain times and certain places, Paul said, even though I have the right to be supported by the church, I will not take that right. I'm going to work with my own hands. Well, obviously, this was an amazing sacrifice, not only of hard work, but also of his self-sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. And Paul puts this example in front of the Thessalonians. If you want even more on this, look at verse 10. He says, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Isn't that a very simple way to put it? Paul says that if anyone will not work, now by the way, he does not say can not work, right? It's not an issue of inability. It's not an issue of no opportunity. It's an opportunity, it's it's an issue, I should say, of the will. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. What's a very basic principle, isn't it? God's plan is to provide for our needs through our work. You know, you could just, oh, Lord, I just pray that you would provide for me, that you would provide for my needs. And it's a wonderful prayer to pray. Go ahead and pray that prayer. But you should be very open to hearing from the Lord where he's saying, get a job, work. This is God's ordained method. Now, of course, we're not here to say that God cannot provide in other means or this or that, but you should work. This is God's main way of providing for our needs. And so he says, Uh, Boy, it's very strong there in verse 10. Neither shall he eat. You see, since God is able to provide for our needs in any manner imaginable, it means something that for the most part, he has chosen to meet our needs through work. Think about it, right? What's the great example of this from the pages of the Old Testament? How did God provide for the needs of Israel during the Exodus? Did they have to work? Well, yes. As a matter of fact, I I was almost going to say no. But as I'm thinking about this example through my head, did you know that gathering manna was work? That it came upon the ground as sort of this, this dust that you had to stoop down and sweep up and then process afterwards. It it didn't just, you know, it wasn't just like um, gumdrops coming from the sky and landing in your mouth. No, you you had to work for it. So, listen, it's possible for God. Okay, I just thought of a way that, that God provided for somebody's needs without working. How about when the raven brought food to Elijah by the brook? Even though that was a whole nother issue because Elijah had to learn how to take food from the mouth of an unclean animal, which normally he would not do as a good Jewish boy, but that's a whole nother issue. At least we can say Elijah did not have to work for the food, right? The raven brought the food. Well, listen, this is unusual. But if God so wanted to, he could do that all the time, right? He could send, there's a lot of birds around. They could be bringing us food all day long. 
God could choose to provide for our needs in any sort of miraculous ways. But instead, God says, no, no, no. My preferred method is for you to work. Now, you have to ask yourself the question, why? Why, God? I'll tell you why. Because work is very important to God. But work is part of his character. Is it unreasonable for us to say God is a hard-working God? God is always busy. God is not lazy. Just look at the example of the creation of the world, right? He worked for six days and then took one day off. Yeah, he took one day off, but don't forget that. He worked for six days. Think about Jesus and the work he did as a carpenter, right? What do you think it would have looked like if you would have went into Jesus' carpenter shop? You think it would have been a mess? You think he would have had his feet up on a table, drinking an iced tea, you know, letting jobs go unfulfilled and not worried about his work and doing sloppy jobs? You know it couldn't have been like that, right? Just something within you says, no, 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 you know that Jesus ran a great carpenter shop, that he was a hard worker. Of course, we know that the Apostle Paul was a hard worker, too. He said radical things. One of my favorite things that the Apostle Paul said, comparing himself to the other apostles, it's really amazing that Paul said this. I, I'm surprised that he didn't get him into great arguments with the other apostles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about his work compared to the work of the other apostles, and he says, I worked harder than any of them. Well, I, I don't know how the other apostles felt about that. Gee, Paul. But Paul could say it honestly. I am the hardest working apostle. Yes, hard work is very important for the character of God. God is a busy God. He's always at work because working and being busy and productive is part of God's character. You know, just this week I was you know, just talking about things, you know, just conversing in the way that you do when you're traveling and, you know, you don't maybe have much to do at a particular time. My son and I were talking. And he was asking me questions, what is heaven going to be like? And one of the things I was trying to explain to him is, you know, there's a very precious verse in, uh, in the book of Revelation that indicates for us that heaven is going to be a place of blessed, productive work. It says there, and his servants shall serve him. That's work, right? Serving God means some sort of productive work. Now, nobody should think that heaven is going to be like one endless vacation. That's not the idea of heaven. I don't know what. I can't explain to you. Please don't ask me for the answers. I can't elaborate on it. But I know that heaven will be a place of work, of service, because it says about heaven, and his servants shall serve him. So don't think that we just work now until we get to heaven and then it's endless vacation. Of course, the great thing about heaven is that our work there will be freed from the curse. You you know that, don't you? You know that God has put a curse on work, right? That it says that by the sweat of your brow you shall eat your bread. And that the earth would sometimes feel like iron when man tried to work it. We know that from the curse that God put upon Adam and Eve at the fall of the human race way back in Genesis chapter 3. That that there there is a, a cursed element to work. Oh, but praise God when we get to heaven and we still have work to do, but it's freed from the curse. Well, anyway, Paul is, is, is emphasizing this point, verse 10. Now we move into verses 11 through 13, where he says, For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren... 
Do not grow weary in doing good. I have to say, I, I read this, and right now as I'm reading, I'm just struck all over again as I read this. I, I don't know how many sermons I've heard or how many sermons I've preached, for heaven's sakes, I'm a preacher, on laziness. You know, here, Paul seems to take it very seriously, right? Hey, I hear that there's some lazy people among you, Paul says. They're not working at all, but they're busybodies. You see, the idleness of some people among the Thessalonians had become a source of sin. It wasn't just because of the work that they didn't do, right? Isn't that one sin of laziness or idleness? There's work out there that you didn't do, but yet there's also harm that you do with your idle time. And that's what he means by being a busybody. You know what a busybody is, right? Somebody who's always meddling into the affairs of someone else. You, you, you need to pay attention to your own life, to your own work, to your own... Stop meddling in everybody else's affairs. You know, it's interesting that, there, that there's a play on words in the ancient Greek text here between the phrasing in the lines, not working at all, and the phrase, but are busybodies. As it reads in the ancient Greek, the idea is something like, these are busybodies who do no business, and they should stop it. They need to get to work. Now, I want you to think about this. What was the thing that Paul had to address among the Thessalonians in the last chapter that we studied together, Thessalonians chapter 2? Apparently, some of them had thought that they were already in the Great Tribulation, right? Now, can you imagine how this might fit into it? Why should we work? We're in the Great Tribulation. Why should we work? The end of all things is near. You see, perhaps these busybodies thought that if Jesus was coming soon, it made no sense to work. It would, then would be easy for them to intrude into the lives of others and to take advantage of Christian generosity. You, know, you can just imagine, here's a church community in Thessalonica, and there's, there's a few, let's just say there's four or five among 50 believers, there's four or five of them there who, who have this attitude, well, you know, Jesus is coming so soon, why should we work? But isn't it funny, they always show up over at your house at dinner time, right? And Paul says, no, let them provide for their own bread. Have them stop mooching off of other people. And so he says, with great authority here. Did you notice that great authority? He says, now those who are such, we command. Again, there's authority there. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul commanded these busybodies to work, to, to get out of the business of other people and to provide for their own needs instead of expecting other Christians to provide for them. Now, we certainly know from passages like 1 Timothy chapter 5, where Paul gives instruction for the care and the support of widows, that the early church did provide for the truly needy among them. But you see, even with the situation of widows in the early church, Paul said, you find out that they're truly needy before you provide for their needs. Now, he says all that, but did you notice what he said at the end of verse 13 there? He says, or actually it's the entire uh, verse 13. He says, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. In other words, Paul doesn't want to imply that it's all of the Thessalonians who are like this. No, no, not at all. It seems to have been a small group. But Paul was concerned that that small group be addressed in the letter. And so he addresses them. But he says, but for the most of you, the most of you who are working hard and glorifying the Lord through your, your, your busy lives, do not grow weary in doing good. Now, this was a proper encouragement to those people who were working as they should. Listen, there are few things that make you want to give up working more than seeing other people take advantage of Christian generosity in your work. Isn't it that way? 
you see some lazy moochers out there doing their thing and getting along okay, and you think, well, why should I work? Why do I work so hard? And it seems that everybody just is sympathetic towards those other people. What good is it for me to work? But, you know, we should never let the manipulations of some people discourage us from doing good to the truly needy. You know, I, I, I kind of like this, and I have to confess, I like it from a sermon that I, I studied by Charles Spurgeon that was on this text. He, he, he preached it off of the old King James text. We're studying here from the new King James text. In the old King James text, it says, Be not weary in well-doing. You know, the new King James says, Don't grow weary in doing good. But it says here in the old King James, Be not weary in well-doing. And Spurgeon pointed out, he said, you know, there's a lot of well-wishing in the world. There's a lot of well-resolving. There's a lot of well-suggesting. There's a lot of well-criticizing. All those things there's plenty of. There's also a lot of well-talking in the world. But Spurgeon said, there's not enough of simple well-doing. This is what he said. He said, well-doing consists in taking down the shutters and selling your goods tucking up your shirt sleeves and doing a good day's work, sweeping the carpets and dusting the chairs if you happen to be a domestic servant. Well-doing is attending to the duties that arise out of the relationships in life, attending carefully to them and seeing that in nothing we are eye-servers and men-pleasers, but in everything we are seeking to serve God. You have to think about it. There are many excuses that someone might make in allowing themselves to become weary in doing good, but all of those excuses should be rejected. They they should say, well, it takes so much effort to keep doing good. But listen, you know, you'll extend effort towards the things of the world. Why not extend effort towards the things of doing good? Well, it takes so much self-denial to keep doing good. But, you know, it's worth it when you consider the reward. You could say, well, it just brings me persecution to do good. But listen, your persecutions are nothing compared to what other people have suffered. You could say, well, listen, when I do good, people don't respond and there's little results. But but remember how slow you were to respond to Jesus Christ. Or, or they may say, listen, I don't get many thanks when I do good. I don't get much gratitude. But God sends many blessings to those people who do not thank or appreciate him. And so here, do not grow weary in doing good, especially when you see other lazy people. Verses 14 and 15, he says, And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Again, Paul is now finishing the thought that he introduced back at verse 6. In verse 6 he says, We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Now down to verse 14. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Now notice that. That's the idea. Note the person. Do not keep company with them. Why? To condemn them? No. To send them to hell? No. The idea is so that they will be ashamed. The the purpose is not to make him an enemy of the church, but through the severity of the withdrawal from fellowship to warn and admonish the person as an erring brother. 
Look at verse 15. It's very important. Do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. You know, of course, we know that there are certainly situations where church discipline is needed. And there are certain situations where somebody needs to be uh, confronted and approached and worked with and dealt with regarding their sin. And even if that person has to be pushed out of the fellowship and said, you're no longer welcome here because your life is disorderly and, and you won't agree to live after the traditions and the teachings of the New Testament, you, you're, you're just being rebellious. It's not a problem of your weakness, but you're just being stubborn and rebellious against the ways of the Lord, even when we must resort to that great step, we do not count that person as an enemy. No, we admonish them as a brother. Even when we must take that severe step of putting them outside of our particular fellowship of the saints, we do it because we love them and we want to win them from their sin, not because we hate them and we want to punish them and we want to push them far from us. I like what John Calvin said about this. He said, The intention of excommunication is not to drive men from the Lord's flock, but rather to bring them back again when they have wandered and gone astray. Excommunication is to be distinguished from cursing or making somebody accursed. So, having finished that train of thought with a very important phrase, do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, Ending the letter here, verses 16 through 18, he says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Can you picture this in your mind? Paul has been dictating this letter to somebody who's writing. If you go back to the very first verse of the letter, it says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Would it surprise you if Silvanus or Timothy was writing the letter? Probably one of them were writing it. And Paul, you know, for some reason, I picture him pacing back and forth in a room, you know, speaking, obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Silvanus and Timothy are there writing down what Paul says. And Paul sort of concludes what he's saying by saying, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. Paul gave them a blessing of peace. Now, isn't that an appropriate blessing for this church that was experiencing persecution that we saw in in chapter 1, tribulation and trouble, thinking that they were in the great tribulation in chapter 2, and now dealing with some unruly people in chapter 3. It's the presence of the Lord of peace who will grant them this peace. And so Paul says, yes, that's what I want for these Thessalonians. They're persecuted. They're they're troubled over their misunderstandings of of, uh, the return of Jesus Christ. They they, they think they're in the Great Tribulation. Paul's wondering, I hope I corrected them from that misunderstanding. As much as anything, I want them to be in peace. Peace from persecution. Peace from their wrong ideas. Peace from the disorderly brethren who are troubling them. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. And then after Paul dictates those words to Silvanus or Timothy, he says, you know what, I, give me that pen. And he goes over to the scroll that they were writing upon, and he says, 
the salutation of Paul with my own hand. Wouldn't it be a thrill if you were among the Thessalonians getting that letter for the first time and you see this very nice script that, that is being written by Sylvanus or Timothy. You know, it's very nice, very uniform, the way that they would write on these parchments and all the rest of it. And then finally, you see some, some awkward big letters that Paul makes. Now, I want you to know that, that Paul, apparently, because in one of his letters, I'm afraid I can't remember which one exactly right now, but in one of the letters, Paul writes in this little end script, he says, see what big letters I make with my own hand. This is one reason why people believe that Paul maybe had an eye problem and he was forced into making big letters because he couldn't see very well. You know, if Paul was among us today, he would have the large print Bible because he needed the big letters. And so Paul says, here, I'm writing this with my own hand. And so you're reading that scroll, you're in the Thessalonian church, and you see that the handwriting changes. And you go, ooh, that's neat. Paul wrote that himself. Of course, the whole letter's from Paul. Of course, the whole letter's from the Holy Spirit. But it's just something a little special to think that Paul took the pen and put it to the parchment right there. And he said, the salutation of Paul with my own hand, which, by the way, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. In other words, it was a mark of authenticity. Now you might say, well, were people out there faking letters from Paul? Apparently so. Look at it here. Go back to chapter 2, verse 2. He says, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us. It may very well be that there were people writing false letters in Paul's name. And Paul said, listen, you can know if it's my letter because it'll have my words at the very end of it. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, verses 16, 17, 18, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You know what I like about this? Paul began the letter with grace, chapter 1, verse 2. Now he ends the letter with grace. For Paul, God's grace was the beginning and the end of the Christian life. It was appropriate that this letter, and most of the letters of Paul, began and ended with the mention of grace. And if there's any one final mention we want to make, just as we leave the letter right here, notice that little word there in verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Wait a minute, Paul. Aren't there some people freaked out about wrong ideas of biblical prophecy? Paul says, yes, I want the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be with them. Well, wait a minute, Paul. Aren't there some believers who are just living disorderly lives and they need to be dealt with? Paul says, you know, I want the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be with them as well. You see, Paul takes those and he talks to those to whom he had been rebuking and correcting. And he says, I love them. I want the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be with them as well. And so he ends the letter, I like what the great Puritan commentator John Trapp said about this. He says, Thus he poureth out his affection by prayer upon prayer for them, a sweet closing up. And that's what it is indeed as Paul ends this letter. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you, and and we ask for the same things, Lord. We want to live orderly lives before you, lives that are productive and useful for your kingdom, Father. And uh, whatever you need to speak to us about laziness, Lord, well, then just speak it to our hearts and illuminate our minds, Lord. We want to be well-pleasing to you in this area of our life as in all areas. But, Father, show us how to have lives filled with your peace, with your grace, even as Paul mentions at the end of this letter. And we trust 
that as we abide in Jesus and as his word abides in us, you'll lead us just into that kind of walk with you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.